Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you, Ricky, for, for leading for us this evening to the musicians and the band. That was, that was just great. It would be really useful if you could uh, keep your Bibles open at the passage that uh, Ricky read to us earlier. You'll find that the bulk of the passage that he read is on page 1,112 of the, the Pew Bible. Let's just, let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's different for, from everything else that we read about, for it is the living word of God, a word that has power to change lives, to speak into individuals, and to see real and lasting change brought. We pray, Father, for the passage that we've read about this evening and for the things that we're going to think about now, that lives will be changed because of your living word. Amen. My wife has a, a recurring nightmare every time that I tell her that I've been asked to, to speak somewhere, and it's that I'm going to be asked to speak on a passage that's been set to music, and that I'll start off my, my sermon by singing the passage to the congregation. Her real fear is Psalm 137, and I'm going to start off by singing Boney Ems by the rivers of Babylon. Now, tonight is one of the passages that she fears because we have a, a version of this story at home set to music. But I just want to put your minds at rest, and I've already put hers at rest, that I'm not going to do that because I don't want to detract from the story that we've, we've read about because there's a lot of, of very deep and very important truths that are contained in it that we want to take our time over the next while together this evening just to, to think our way through. It was a long story that we read about tonight, and I think it might be helpful if we just summarized at, at the start of our time just what, what had happened as we've seen in, in recent weeks, if you've been out with us at Kirkpatrick, as we've thought our way through some of the, the sections of the book of Acts, Paul has embarked on his second missionary journey. He's made his way from his base in, in Antioch through what we would today refer to as, as modern-day Turkey. And we find now Paul and Silas having crossed the Aegean Sea, and he's entered uh, mainland Europe. Now, Christoph. I spoke to us last week about a couple of the, the first visits that they made when they, they entered mainland Europe as they came through modern-day Greece. But now we find them at the first major city, the city of Philippi. And we're going to think tonight about the incidents that happened during their time in Philippi. Now, last week, if you were here, you might remember Christoph mentioned the first encounter that they had in Philippi when they came across the businesswoman Lydia. If you remember her story... She heard God's good news, and she responded positively to it. In the story we've read about tonight, Luke tells us of two other individuals who again heard that good news, and they also responded positively to it. There was the young slave girl. If you remember her story, she was indwelt by the demonic spirit, and she was released from that by God through Paul's intervention. And then there was the, the Roman jailer, you remember he quickly found his position of power that he had over Paul and Silas taken away when the mighty earthquake struck. And in a state of panic, he turned to Paul and to Silas for help. And he too responded to the good news of God and found his life changed radically. Those were all folks who heard the good news and whose lives were changed positively. But we also see in tonight's story some folks whose lives weren't affected at all, in fact, who were greatly upset by the message of Paul and Silas. They were the owners of the slave girl. 
We see what, what annoys them. They find that the removal of the girls, the slave girls' ability to foretell the future removed their ability to make profit from her, and she didn't, they didn't like it. And then we hear of the, the Roman judges. They unlawfully, at the end of the story, unlawfully imprison Paul and Silas, and when they realize their error, they have to quietly and apologetically uh, have Paul and Silas released and escorted out of Philippi. As well as the folks who hear Paul and Silas's message, we have a lot to learn from what Paul and Silas actually got up to and some of the encounters that, that they had. Now, the story that we, we read about is one of great drama. I think it's one that would make a, a really good, good film. But setting aside the drama of what actually happens, there are some very key biblical principles as well that it would be good to remind ourselves of uh, as we're here tonight. It doesn't take too much uh, looking around in the, the, the press and the media to discover that the world is in a mess. Now, whether that's on a, on a global scale, you can see terrorist activities, there's dreadful pollution of our planet, there's economic exploitation, there's exploitation of human beings. The world around us is in a mess. But I suspect as well, on an individual level, scratch a little bit beneath the surface, probably of a lot of folks here tonight, and you'll find that a lot of individuals' lives are in a mess too, whether those be physical concerns, emotional, financial, or spiritual. I think we can safely conclude that the world around us and the world that we live in is in a mess. But we can thank God that the message of his word, the gospel, the Christian message, is one of good news to a world that's in a mess. Let's look for a moment at the story of the jailer. Let's look through his eyes and see what it might tell us. His story, if you, you have your Bibles open, is told in verses 25 through to 34. And let's look particularly at verse 30. Verse 30 is a, a verse when I was growing up that preachers loved to home in on. When the jailer calls out, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Preachers loved to quote that, that verse as if the jailer was asking some deep theological question to Paul and Silas about the nature of spiritual salvation. Because you think about it, it makes a great peg on which to hang a sermon. But I wonder if you really think about it. If you think about the jailer's question in that way, are we maybe misconstruing what he was really at? You see, the jailer would have been a Roman, would have lived in a pagan environment. He wouldn't have had a strong sense that there was a heaven and a hell, that some would be saved and that some would be lost. And therefore, it was crucial to know which side of the fence you were on. No, he wouldn't have known any of that. Now, in his pagan world, there would, of course, been all sorts of theories about the afterlife, but nothing as clear and as precise as the notion that we have, which was a really a Western notion, of a heaven and a hell, a saved and a lost. In any case, think about it. It was after midnight... He was in charge of a prison where there had just been an earthquake. The doors had burst open, and he was going to be held responsible for the prisoners that would undoubtedly escape. And the punishment for him 
would have been torture and death. He wasn't going to ask these strange visitors in his prison cell for a detailed explanation of justification uh, by grace through faith. Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, recommends that we catch a far better sense of the jailer's question if if we were translated in this way. He thinks that the jailer really calls out uh, to Paul and Silas, will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? Will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? But the jailer gets far more than he bargained for when he asked his questions. Now, it wasn't that Paul and Silas were taking the classic politician's line of being asked one question and answering it with another. Rather, Paul gives the jailer a deeper answer to the question that he asks. You see, the Christian worldview sees the entire world as being in a mess, from the corruption of human life and relationships, the pollution of our planet, the worldwide system of economic exploitation, all of the things we thought about earlier. We see that, the Christian sees that, as being because the world is no longer recognizing the lordship of God, no longer living as God intended it to be. Rather, to enjoy the life that God intended, we should have, we must, sim- we, we must not simply believe that Jesus existed, but that his claims of all that he was and all that he did are true, and that we must accept that he is the Lord of our life. And that is why the answer that Paul gives to the jailer, to believe in the Lord Jesus, to believe that Jesus is Lord of all, is always the answer to the question of how to be rescued in whatever, at whatever level and in whatever sense one needs rescuing. In other words, Paul and Silas answered both the specific question that the jailer asked and the much deeper question that lies beneath it. And that's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. How do we get ourselves out of the mess that we're in, whether that be on a global level or on an individual one? Now, the good news that the Christian message proclaims, it isn't one about getting in touch with one's inner spiritual self. It's not about committing oneself to a life of worship or of prayer or of good works. It isn't even about believing some particular theory about how God deals with our sins. It's more simple than that. It's about recognizing and acknowledging and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. Now, if that's something that you haven't done before and that you feel you would like to, there are lots of folks here tonight who would be just delighted to talk with you about that further. We're going to have some time at the end of our service when we stay behind for tea and coffee. If that's something that you would like to do, do stay behind and make that known, and we would love to talk that through with you. But maybe you're thinking, well, that's all very interesting, but but it's not for me. I'm not the type of person who would be welcomed into God's kingdom, into a kingdom where Jesus is Lord. Well, the passage that we've looked at tonight has something to say to us about this. We've already thought about three of the people who find their lives changed forever when they confront Paul and Silas in Philippi. Lydia, the businesswoman, the slave girl, 
and the Roman jailer. Let's look for a moment at these three individuals and see what we can learn from them about who might be welcomed into God's kingdom. Now, Philippi was uh, a very cosmopolitan city uh, because it had been Greek, and by the time Paul and Silas arrived there, it's Roman. Now, Lydia, as you'll see if you have a look at at verse 14, uh, she's from Asia Minor, from, from Turkey. She's an immigrant into Philippi. She's not a native. The slave girl, well, she's most likely Greek, and she's a a resident. And the jailer, well, he was probably Roman, a retired soldier or some sort of an army veteran. And like all all officials in the, the Roman administration of their day, he would have been a Roman himself. All three are different nationalities, brought up in different cultures. But now in Jesus Christ, they find unity. They find they're welcomed. See, it doesn't doesn't matter about what our nationality is, what our ethnicity is. In Jesus Christ, we are all welcomed into his kingdom. Or or take their social backgrounds. Now, Lydia is likely to have been a a wealthy woman, a a businesswoman. She certainly, look at verse 15, she had a house that was large enough to uh, accommodate uh, four of the missionaries. The slave girl, well, she would have come from the very other end of the social spectrum. You couldn't sink much lower in the public esteem than to be a female slave. She owned nothing, not even herself. She had no possessions, no right, no liberty. She didn't have a life of her own. And the jailer, well, he was probably sort of halfway uh, between the two. Although he had a, a responsible post in the local prison, he was still very much a, a subordinate official in government service. I suppose you would say today maybe he belonged to the, the sort of the respectable middle class. Yet again, these three foundational members of the Philippian church were admitted into it on the same terms with no distinction dependent on their social background. Again, learn the lesson that these three present. To be welcomed into Christ's kingdom, it doesn't matter what social background at all you come from. For all are welcomed. Or let's think about their their personal needs. Well, Lydia's need, I think, could be said to be an intellectual one. Look at verse 14. The point Luke makes about her when he tells this story is that she kept listening and the Lord opened her heart. That really means her her mind to what Paul was saying. Just as, as the Lord had opened the minds of the disciples Lydia's need was an intellectual one, and God met it. The slave girl, her need was maybe slightly different. I suppose we could say it was a a psychological one. Well, yes, now, she had an evil spirit uh, that needed to be exercised. But being possessed by a spirit then, just as now, can have terrible psychological consequences. She'd lost her, her identity, her individuality as a human being. If socially she belonged as a slave to her masters, psychologically she belonged to whatever spirit, demonic spirit, was controlling her. So Lydia's need, an intellectual one, the slave girl's, a psychological one, and the jailer's, well, I suppose we could say his need was a moral need. At least we know that his conscience had been to some degree aroused since he cried out that he needed to be saved, for the mess that he was in to be sorted out. 
Now, the needs of human beings don't change much with the, the changing years. And the good news of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ can still meet those needs in the same way as he met the needs of the three individuals in Philippi. See, think about the three individuals in the way that we've done, and you'll see demonstrated the universal appeal of God's good news. Whatever your background, whatever your nationality, your gender, your age, your needs, your social status, the welcome that Jesus Christ gives you into his kingdom is the same for all. Let's think as well a little bit about those who were already inside the kingdom about Paul and Silas. And can we learn anything uh, from their, their story in Philippi? I think the story that, that we hear about in Philippi, about Paul and Silas, tells us much about what Christians might expect in the life that we live here in Belfast uh, in the 21st century. You see, we're already part of that kingdom where we trusted Jesus Christ as Lord. And we are called to engage in much the same activity that Paul and Silas were engaged in, to live out wherever we're based and to share with whoever we meet God's good news. But in doing so, we might find ourselves in some of the same difficulties that Paul and Silas found themselves in. I think it's vital to remember that being part of God's family and sharing his good news doesn't mean that the life we live here on earth will be easy, will be trouble-free. Look at what happened to Paul and Silas. They were dragged about. They were falsely accused. They were stripped. They were beaten. They were thrown into jail. Anyone who tries to suggest that becoming a Christian, you'll find that the difficulties of life are over won't find any support for it in a passage like this, or in fact in many of the other passages and acts that we're going to look at in the weeks that are coming. Now we are of course told in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, that one day life will be different. One day when, when Jesus returns, God's going to wipe away every tear. And there'll be no more dying or mourning or crying or pain. But here and now, just as Paul and Silas find Pain and suffering are just as much, in fact, maybe more, the lot for a Christian as someone who's not. I think this story actually gives us some pointers that might suggest that Christians actually might suffer more than others in this world. Let's think for a moment as to why that might be. Why might Christians suffer more than those who aren't? And again, I think we find some clues to that in the story that we've looked at tonight, particularly in Paul and Silas's interaction with the slave girl and her owners. Let's think about that story again for a moment. At a very basic level, the slave girl's owners used her situation to make profit for themselves. The deliverance of the slave girl from the spirit that had possessed her was too much for her owners. If you remember, when they realized that, that the evil spirit had gone for her, and so had their hope of making profit, they were incensed. They were infuriated, and not for the first time, nor for the last. When the good news of the gospel, God's good news for humankind, impacts on someone's profit, things turn nasty. Many of you have probably have seen the, the film that came out uh, last year, I think it was, the film Amazing Grace, that tells the story 
of William Wilberforce's life, of his ultimately successful campaign to abolish slavery in the British Isles. He had, however, to endure much hardship as his campaign, which you might remember, was based upon his strong Christian values, challenged the prophets of many in the society in his time. In more recent times, think about those who have had to stand up to things that are in the content of of film or media uh, or in print. How often have they found themselves vilified by those who have stood to make profit out of those films or those publications? You see, the economic motives that underpin so much of our society often run counter to the very fundamental principles of the Christian life, and that's a conflict that just can't be resolved. When this happens, we can't expect anything other than a degree of suffering. Paul and Silas also, of course, challenged something of the, the political philosophy of their day. Look again at the, in verse 20, look at the charge that the slave owners place when they bring out the, the Roman judges. The charge is a, it's a combination, isn't it, of, of religion and politics. The religious one, they say, these men are Jews. Now, that, of course, was, was true. And they go on to say, and they're advocating customs which we Romans ought not to adopt or, or to observe. And that, of course, was was half true. The point was this. Philippi was a Roman colony. We've thought about that earlier. And it was proud of it. The town stood on the main route. If you were traveling from Rome towards Turkey, anywhere actually in the Far East, you would have traveled through Philippi. Philippi was a place that had benefited much from being under Roman influence. It needed to keep up its its Roman standards and its Roman culture. And these men, well, they're not our sort. They're trying to change our customs. They're anti-Roman. And that infuriated them. And again, we can see something of that in society today. We live in a society today which is based on a a postmodern system of, of political correctness, which really says that there are there are no absolute standards except that there's no absolute standard. And that's a philosophy that's just fundamentally at odds with the Christian message of there being one God who is absolutely true. And the result of this is, again, a conflict between Christian teaching on the one hand and what society says on the other. And again, that's a conflict that just cannot be resolved. And we can see this often in the media where those who stand up for the absolute truth of the Christian faith are portrayed as as dangerous and people who are best avoided. And that's what will happen when we do that. Just as Paul and Silas, as they stood up to the political philosophy of their day, as we stand up for it in our day, against that system of, of political correctness, we will expect to find suffering. But should the fear of consequences of standing up cause us to be silent? Well, that's what many in society today would wish to see happening to Christians. They would wish to see Christianity being turned from a public faith into a private one. But that's not good enough for us because we have something, if we're Christians, something that's so special, that's so important 
that we must share it with those around us. We can't stay silent. Now, we might find ourselves, like Paul and Silas, temporarily suffering, but ultimately allowed to continue on our own way. Or we might find ourselves permanently punished throughout our time on earth. But whatever the outcome we experience, we can take great comfort from knowing that all that happens to us in this world is under God's sovereign hand. Just as the jailer was told, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is in charge of all. Now, in verse 37, you'll see that Paul's time in in Philippi ends with a, a really fascinating account where Paul invokes his rights as a Roman citizen to force the authorities to allow him the freedom to proclaim the good news. Now, that's perhaps an early example of a a claim that we often hear about today, a a claim to the right of of freedom of expression of religious belief. Now, this passage and, and, and others like it have raised for many people the question of whether Christians are right to use the legal rights that society gives us today in the service of the gospel. And this passage seems to suggest that maybe there are occasions when that might well be so. There are, of course, other passages that that, that point the other way. Now, tonight I don't think we have have time, and this maybe isn't the right forum to to delve into that issue. But it is one of immense importance in society today. Society seeks, as we think about, to constrict and to confine the Christian faith often to a private one. When should we use the legal rights that we have to seek to further the gospel? An interesting question, but perhaps one for another day. So as, as Paul and Silas leave Philippi and begin the, and, and their journey traveling south, let's reflect on some of the lessons from their time there. What we've heard, we've heard a clear explanation of the, upon the basis of, upon which we can come into God's family. We can come into God's family not when we simply believe in Jesus, but when we believe in all that he said and that we acknowledge that he is the Lord of our lives. We've seen that the kingdom is open to all, regardless of class, of gender, of age, of social status, of need or nationality. And we've heard of the suffering that Christians must expect as the good news challenges the powers of this world that are often at polar opposites from it. But in all of this, we can take great comfort from the fact that God is sovereign and that he reigns over all. May God give us ears that are open to hear his word and the courage, if courage is needed, to act upon it. Amen. Let's stand together as we end our time together and let's sing number 487. We're going to sing Charles Wesley's hymn And can it be, as we think through the wonder in song of God's good news for mankind. Let's stand and sing, And can it be.